Welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha, a podcast shared by David Roylance. This podcast is dedicated to guiding you to completely eliminate the discontent mind and the suffering it causes by attaining enlightenment. Learn and practice the teachings of Gotama Buddha that will guide you to fully attain a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy. To support this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha or visit buddhadailywisdom.com where you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online learning resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Now, here's our teacher to share more. Sawadikap, hello and welcome to Daily Wisdom, Walking the Path with the Buddha. Today we're going to be discussing the five hindrances. These are the five aspects of the mind that Gautama Buddha taught that will hinder you from the attainment of enlightenment, this mental state where the mind is permanently peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. This is something that I haven't put into the book, Developing a Life Practice, The Path That Leads to Nibbana, but was something that I thought would be a really nice kind of preliminary class prior to the restart of our group learning program, which will be restarting on Wednesday, the 3rd of February. Because as you embark on this journey, or if you've been on this journey for any length of time, there can easily be things that hinder you or obstruct you or block you from the attainment of enlightenment as you progress. Because this path to enlightenment is all about learning certain teachings, reflecting on those, and then applying them in practice so that you can train the mind to gradually improve. And there are certain aspects of the mind that we're eliminating in order to move closer to enlightenment. And there are certain aspects of the mind and certain qualities that we're cultivating into the mind. So here, what we're going to be talking about are the five hindrances, the five things that when you look at them and you understand them, you can start to work with them skillfully if any of these exist in your mind, which I have a feeling there probably are. As you see them and you're aware of them and you get the wisdom of what they are, that kind of helps you with the intellectual learning to be aware of what the five hindrances are. And then through understanding the remedy, which I'm going to be sharing with you today, through understanding this remedy, you can then apply that over a consistent period of time to remove this particular hindrance from the mind so that you can then be unobstructed as you walk closer and closer to enlightenment on this path to enlightenment. So thank you for joining. I really appreciate that you're here. If you've been part of the group learning program in the past, welcome. I'm glad that you're continuing in the program. If this is your first class with us and you're joining us as a preliminary class to the official restart on Wednesday, I would like to welcome you as well because learning and practicing these teachings, you can gradually move the mind along this path that the Buddha shared with us that will gradually improve your wisdom and gradually train the mind to be more and more enlightened where the mind will be peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. So thank you for joining. As we go, there's going to be opportunities for you to ask questions. 
our moderator, Max, actually not our moderator, Max, our moderator, James and Manal, who isn't really officially the moderator today, but she's kind of there and kind of paying attention. They're both helping with the classes in order to take in any questions. And if you submit a question on Facebook, YouTube, or in our Zoom virtual classroom through the comment section, James was looking at that today and he'll ensure that those questions get asked during the class so that I can answer them for you. And if you're in the Zoom classroom, you can electronically raise your hand and James will call on you to ask any questions or any follow-up questions because he'll need to unmute you in order to allow you to ask your question. So let's go ahead and get started with today's class by talking and sharing some of the teachings from the actual Buddha. This first phrase here, this first teaching that I'm sharing are teachings directly from the Buddha. And I sometimes like to share words directly from the Buddha in order to kind of help you understand where we're headed in terms of the teachings that I'm going to share with you. These are the actual words of the historical Buddha from the Pali Canon. He says bhikkhus. Bhikkhus is, are the male ordained practitioners. The females are bhikkhunis. So here he says bhikkhus. There are these five hindrances. What five? The hindrance of sensual desire. The hindrance of ill will. The hindrance of complacency. Oftentimes people will translate this as sloth and toper. So I translate it as complacency. The hindrance of restlessness and worry. The hindrance of doubt. These are the five hindrances. Then he goes on. This noble eightfold path is to be developed for direct knowledge of these five hindrances, for the full understanding of them, for their utter destruction, for their abandoning. Okay, so this is the Buddha essentially just very lightly introducing the five hindrances and saying that the Eightfold Path is the way to eliminate these. But he goes on in other parts of his teachings where he talks about other aspects of how to eliminate these five hindrances. But this is kind of like a little bit of an introduction. What we've got in the Pali Canon and where this is coming from is 45 volumes of books that are quite large and quite big. And this topic of the five hindrances isn't just in one particular area of the Pali Canon. It's kind of spread out over various aspects of these volumes of books, 45 volumes in the complete set. So this particular teaching is just one little tiny extract of pulling out from the Pali Canon where he was kind of introducing the five hindrances and kind of pointing to an aspect of how to eliminate them. But he talks further about them in his actual teachings, which you can start to become more and more familiar with. But oftentimes people find it a bit challenging to go right into the Buddhist teachings. So that's why there's teachers like me that will help kind of get you moving in the direction of learning some introductory teachings, getting more even into intermediate and advanced teachings before you actually move into learning directly with the words of the Buddha. Not that you couldn't start there. There's definitely people in the world that have started directly with the Buddhist teachings. But the challenge is, is that these teachings have been through 2,500 years of impermanence. 
There's been various people that have translated them in different ways. And there's different words being used in different translations. And everyone has a different perspective in some cases of what one thing means or another. So oftentimes, if you're looking at three, four, five different translations of the same exact teaching, it can read very differently. And the person who's just starting out on a path can become quite confused. And that can be a hindrance right there by itself. So there's teachers like me that provide you the opportunity to reach out and seek guidance to learn as you go. And we kind of help explain to you what the Buddha taught. And then as you progress over many months or years, then you can move closer and closer to learning directly with the words of the Buddha, which we have a program here that does that each Saturday. So on Sunday and Wednesday, we teach this group learning program, which is kind of like a bachelor's degree, master's degree in Buddhist studies. And then moving into Saturday's class, which is the words of the Buddha, Pali Canon and English study group. That's kind of like a PhD because there you're learning directly with the words of the Buddha. But even in this group learning program, I oftentimes will bring in these teachings and these words of the Buddha just a little bit, just to kind of get you some introductory exposure to his word, his phrasing, his word choices, and some of the things that he has said during his life. So this particular teaching is just to kind of see that you're headed in the right direction and the Buddha actually did indeed talk about these five hindrances. The next thing that I would like to share with you is just kind of helping you understand the perspective and kind of frame of reference of how these five hindrances fit in with all the other teachings. So the five hindrances have some similarities to the 10 fetters. When you learn in chapter three about the 10 fetters, the 10 fetters are the 10 taints or the 10 pollution of the mind that the Buddha talked about that is essentially keeping a being in the unenlightened state. And these 10 fetters need to be eliminated ultimately in order to get to enlightenment. And the five hindrances you'll see will have a connection over to the 10 fetters. And this is actually somewhat common in the Buddhist teachings. You'll see some connections, which I talk about here in a bit. Through learning and practicing the Eightfold Path, like the Buddha talked about in that previous teaching, while eliminating these 10 fetters, to include the seven factors of enlightenment, which is another thing that we'll share in chapter three, you will have eliminated the five hindrances. You will have completely eliminated the five hindrances once you learn the Eightfold Path, once you eliminate the 10 fetters and using the seven factors of enlightenment, the five hindrances will be long in your rearview mirror having done that. But there are certain parts of the path as you progress that you might be feeling like there's some obstacles or some hindrances that are kind of blocking you. And as you do, that's why it's good to kind of look at the five hindrances to understand what they are and how to remedy them with the remedies that we're going to talk about today. The Buddhist teachings oftentimes point to each other, right? This is a very common thing where here, as I mentioned, the five hindrances are essentially pointing to the 10 fetters. Four out of the five hindrances are essentially fetters. 
and there's 10 fetters. So they're essentially there. The four of the five are in the, the 10 fetters. So there's kind of like this duplication or crossover. And this is kind of common in the way that the Buddha taught. He even has this same kind of interlinking or interconnectivity in his teachings with things like the three universal truths, the four noble truths, the eightfold path, and the five precepts. All of these things are essentially interconnected, but they are individual teachings. But there's some crossover. Because if you looked at just the Four Noble Truths, you wouldn't really be able to understand that without understanding the Three Universal Truths. And if you looked at just the Eightfold Path, you wouldn't be able to understand that until you looked at the Four Noble Truths, which means you have to look at the Three Universal Truths. And if you looked at just the Eightfold Path, you wouldn't have the depth and clarity that would be exposed had you also looked at the five precepts. So there's kind of this layering approach. And this is the approach I take in my teaching too. You're not able to sit down in one class session or one personal discussion and teach everything, right? Like in this book, Developing a Life Practice, I put a lot of content and a lot of details in here, but for the topics such as right mindfulness, I describe it as awareness of mind, and then I go into some details of that. But I didn't go into the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness are a lot more detailed teaching that if I would put every single last detail of the Buddhist teachings in a book, we'd be back to 45 volumes of books, which we've already got. We've already got 45 volumes of the Pali Canon what I was looking to create in a book like this is somewhat of a curated or extracted version, which consolidates a lot of the core teachings in one place to really get somebody started and moving in the right direction and teaching at a certain level of understanding, a certain level of depth, and then supplement that with online classes, with personal guidance, with teachings directly from the words of the Buddha, and things like this. So this is a common way of teaching that you can't sit down in one sitting or in one book and get everything from the Buddha. Even the Buddha himself, his teachings are span 45 volumes of books. So it's important to understand that we're kind of layering things and the Buddha did that during his lifetime and that's what I'm doing in my teaching as well. And then Understand that if there are struggles or impediments to the path to enlightenment, you can look at these five hindrances individually and apply the solutions individually in order to remove these hindrances, right? It helps you to create progress on this path to enlightenment because there's going to be certain things that come up in your practice and the mind does all kinds of wacky things. As soon as you start removing some of this craving, desire, attachment, all of a sudden here comes some anger, hatred, and ill will, and you remove some of that, and here comes the ego flaring up, and then you remove some of that, but it's not all gone, and now you've got some other things to deal with, like sensual desires or something else. So you're kind of like trying to bring all of these things to the point where you've extinguished them and abandoned them, and cultivated 
these wholesome aspects of the mind through training of the mind. So at different times, should you have hindrances, you're going to be able to look to this as a way of how to solve these particular hindrances. And this is once again where personal guidance and these classes and reaching out to a teacher comes in is that you wouldn't be able to progress on this path without a really good relationship with a teacher where you are very respectful to the teacher and the teacher is very respectful to you. And there's this relationship that forms that you understand working with the teacher and talking with the teacher and receiving guidance and kind of developing that over time where you feel more and more comfortable in doing that. Let me pause here and see if there's any questions so far before we go on any further in our class. And remember, if you have a question, just put that into Facebook, YouTube, or Zoom, or you can raise your hand electronically and ask your question directly. Seems that we have no questions at this time, David. Okay, we'll go ahead and move on then and continue in our class. Now let's actually talk about the individual hindrances themselves. The first one being sensual desire. This is the very first hindrance that the Buddha talks about, which is also part of the 10 fetters. So these sensual desires can hinder you from attaining enlightenment. Essentially what the sensual desires are, are there's these six senses. We call them the six sense faculties or the six sense bases which are the same five that you've always probably known growing up, which are the eyes, the nose, uh, mouth, the ears, physical contact on the body, that's the first five. And then the sixth one that we put in there for Buddhist teachings is the mind. That's a sixth sense because what happens is as an unenlightened human being, we crave and desire. We have this longing with a strong eagerness for pleasure through these six senses. So the eyes want to always see something that's pleasing. It likes agreeable forms. It wants to see things that are agreeable and pleasing. And when it does, and it gets the object of its affection through craving, desire, attachment, then the mind experiences pleasant feelings. But if the eyes see some kind of form that it disagrees with, then it experiences painful feelings and it tends to want to push these away. And this is called aversion or even we call it anger or hatred, right? And we kind of push things away in the unenlightened mind. Well, this also transpires through the other sense bases and sense faculties as well. Whether it's the nose, we smell something agreeable, Oh, that perfume or that flower or that cake or those cookies smell so wonderful and the mind's very pleased and it finds pleasure, this central desire, this central pleasure through the nose and smelling an odor. But then also, if the nose is seeking out that satisfaction through a central desire, then when it smells something displeasing or disagreeable, then it's going to experience painful feelings as a result of that unpleasant odor that it's now taking in. And the tongue the same way, eating things and tasting things, the ears when you hear things, the body, physical contact with the body. 
And one of the things that we do here is, you know, we want certain fabrics or certain blankets, certain uh, lotion. It doesn't mean those things are wrong or that we can't have those things. It just means that the mind gets attached and fixed to them, that when it doesn't have them, then the mind becomes discontent. It experiences this sadness or anger or frustration, these painful feelings. And then the sixth one here is the mind that the mind will oftentimes be searching for the past pleasurable experiences that it had, or it'll be looking forward to the future for certain pleasurable things that are yet to come. And this is the desire. This is the, the mind searching through this sense of the mind, uh, looking for pleasure. And sometimes the mind also experiences pain by looking to the past or looking to the future. And this causes the mind to be stuck and hindered in this unenlightened state as long as the mind's doing this. As long as the mind is having this outward searching for satisfaction of pleasant feelings through these six senses, it's going to experience discontentedness of either painful feelings, pleasant feelings, or feelings that are neither painful nor pleasant. So the remedy here, which we go into in future classes a lot more deeply, but the remedy here is to eliminate this unwholesome root of craving, desire, attachment. This craving, desire, attachment, what you're going to hear in next week's class, is you're going to hear that this is the cause of all discontentedness craving desire attachment the mind is craving it's longing it has this mental longing and it's searching through these sense desires or these sense bases or these sense faculties for pleasure and as long as we allow the mind to do that then it's going to experience discontentedness in one form or another the what we use in order to remedy that in order to get rid of these central desires where the mind is craving through them is we use breathing mindfulness meditation, which is something that I'll be teaching on Wednesdays throughout this program, is breathing mindfulness meditation to train the mind to let go and no longer search externally for satisfaction and focus on the breath. And we'll get to the details of exactly how that's done. And we also practice generosity, giving of our time, effort, energy, and resources in order to let go and train the mind not to be so selfish and hold on so tightly. You know, a lot of us were taught growing up that we should share. We weren't necessarily taught why, we just were taught it was a kind thing and a nice thing to do. Well, the reason why is because by practicing generosity or sharing, or the Buddha called it living open-handedly, by doing that, you're actually training the mind to let go. And this will help you to let go of this craving, desire, attachment, where the mind is searching externally and trying to hold on to these pleasant feelings. And this is another remedy that we talk about as part of this group learning program. Essentially, what you're getting to in order to eliminate the five hindrances, or at least this particular hindrance, the central desires, is you're doing what we call guarding the doorways to discontentedness. Because this discontentedness of mind that we're going to talk about next week, 
it's all going to be experienced through these six sense faculties or these six sense bases. Any discontentedness that you experience in the mind, whether that's sadness, anger, frustration, irritation, annoyance, guilt, shame, fear, boredom, loneliness, shyness, jealousy, resentment, all of these discontent feelings in the mind are coming in through these doorways. And we call this guarding the doorways to discontentedness, or some people might say protecting the doorways to discontentedness. And this is something that we will explore more and more as we move forward in this program and all the other teachings that we talk about. The second hindrance that the Buddha talks about as a major hindrance is what we call ill will. This is also described as hatred or anger. Okay, this is one of the fetters, one of the things that need to be removed in order to get to enlightenment. But it's also one of what we call the three poisons or three fires or three unwholesome roots. This is just the Buddhist teachings, once again, referencing each other, kind of layering on top of each other. Okay, this ill will, this hatred, this anger, this hostility, aggression, resentment, frustration, irritation, annoyance. This is how the mind basically doesn't like what it doesn't like and it tries to push things away. This is also sometimes referred to as aversion. The mind becomes hostile and aggressive because it doesn't get what it wants. That first hindrance is talking about the objects of the mind's desires. It wants this central desires. It wants these pleasant feelings. And when it gets it, the mind gets it. It feels these pleasant feelings. But when it doesn't get what it wants, then it will oftentimes experience this ill will or this hatred or this anger, this pushing away and pushing things away from you and also blocking and kind of erecting a wall between you and other people where you can't just peacefully coexist with another person and just talk things out where you can't just express what's going on in the mind because the mind's holding on to things so tightly that it doesn't want to just let go and it holds on to this anger and hostility. And this causes us problems in our personal and our professional relationships because now we can't exist peacefully with all beings. We can't have loving kindness and compassion and all these other good, wholesome qualities directed at this individual because we might start seeing them as an enemy because the unenlightened mind thinks that this other person did something harmful to you and this person did something bad to you. And because the unenlightened mind attributes its discontentedness to this other person, it tries to push that out of your life thinking that that's going to solve the problem. The unenlightened mind thinks that if I just push this out of my life, then that's going to solve the problem. And now, ah, everything's okay and I feel better. But then what happens is another disagreeable thing comes up in your life and now you've got to push that aside. And then another one and another one and another one. And what the unenlightened mind does is it just keeps pushing things aside and erecting this wall between you and other people and now you can't peacefully coexist with others and the people that you are hostile and angry with that are still in your life they become hostile and angry with you and it just becomes this very uncomfortable relationship where 
things become very hostile and aggressive in the relationship and it feels uncomfortable. And the more uncomfortable it becomes, the more anger and hostility that usually grows as a result. Well, the remedy to this, to eliminate this from the mind is loving kindness meditation. This is something that we also teach in this program on Wednesdays. Loving kindness meditation is a way to cultivate active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, not judging other people as they're good, they're bad, they're right or wrong, or they did something you like, or they did something you didn't like, rather than judging people in that way and then pushing them away with hatred, anger, hostility, aggression, and all of these other things, what you do in loving kindness meditation is you cultivate this active goodwill towards all beings, particularly those people in your life that you have anger and that you have this ill will towards. And when you cultivate that in meditation, then you can go in daily life and you can practice this because there's nothing in your meditation that's going to change other people. What you're doing is you're changing your mind. You're influencing and changing your mind through loving kindness meditation so that now when you go out into the world and you see that person who you've felt hostility towards at work, because you've worked on this skillfully over multiple sessions of meditation, over multiple weeks and maybe months, you now have cultivated this active goodwill without judgment. So when you're around them, you can treat them in a different way than you did before. And you can treat them and experience, have this experience with them being in their presence that is very different than before. Where before, when you had this ill will, this hatred and anger towards them, you got bottled up inside, you got very a lot of pressure, you got anxiety before you had to go see them, you maybe became unkind, maybe you spoke in a harsh way towards them, and this caused you problems in your personal and professional life. But through recognizing that this ill will is originating in your mind, and it's not other people causing the problem, but it's you causing it yourself, and through you training that away and eliminating it skillfully with meditation, now when you're, when you're around that person physically or you're on a phone call or you're writing them an email or whatever it is, you can now practice loving kindness towards that person and all other beings. And because you remove this ill will where you're harming people with your intention, speech, and actions, because you remove that from your practice and what you're putting out into the world is loving kindness, active goodwill towards all beings without judgment, more and more as you practice that over time, that's what will come back to you. But you need to be able to do this for a long time over the course of your life. That's why we call this developing a life practice because you can't just meditate a couple of times and everything in your life changes. You have to develop this life practice where you're actively eliminating certain qualities from the mind and you're actively cultivating certain qualities in the mind. And then the third one that we'll talk about here before I'll accept questions again is what I call complacency. But you'll see this translated in a lot of other texts as sloth and toper. And this is kind of like a really old phrase and word that people have held on to for a really long time. 
And there's more and more people that are starting to move away from that phrase because most people say, what is sloth and toper? <laughs> what is that? <laughs> well, the way that I translate this aspect of the mind is complacency. And I've talked about this in other versions of our group learning program, and I kind of touch on it occasionally here and there because complacency to me is one of the initial and can be one of the biggest hurdles or hindrances or obstructions to your enlightenment. This is where the mind feels dull or lethargic or lack motivation. Like the mind just doesn't want to do anything. It just it, it just becomes complacent where, yeah, you talk bad to people and yeah, people talk bad to you and there's harshness going on in the world and things that are happening around you, but you're just like, ah, eh, you know, you just keep doing what you're doing. Or maybe your life is actually quite peaceful aside from some anger here and there or some hostility here and there, and things are actually maybe quite peaceful and the people around you are quite nice. But the mind still has this complacency and it still experiences this discontentedness. The mind just becomes kind of lackluster and it just kind of wants to stay in one spot. It doesn't want to move on from there. It doesn't want to move forward with taking the time, effort, energy, and resources to actively learn, to actively reflect on the teachings and actively practice them. Because yeah, to get to enlightenment, it's work. It takes a lot of work. If you do nothing, nothing will change for sure. We know that. And that's why complacency is a hindrance or an obstruction. That if you just stay in one place and do nothing and you don't work to actively improve your life through learning and practicing to acquire wisdom, then nothing gets better. And this complacency hinders you and obstructs you from moving forward in your practice and in forward in improving the condition of the mind through training and gaining this wisdom. And it hinders you from realizing the benefits and the results of having done the training and gaining this wisdom. The Buddha gives the remedy to this in the seven factors of enlightenment. In the seven factors of enlightenment, he talks about what somebody needs to do when the mind is sluggish. That's another way to talk about sloth and toper or complacency. When the mind is sluggish, what would you do? Well, the remedy to this from the Buddha is in the seven factors of enlightenment when he talks about the factor of investigation, when he talks about the factor of energy, and he talks about the factor of joy. What the factor of investigation is, is what you guys are doing right now. By you actively choosing to learn the teachings of the Buddha, you're investigating the teachings. You're actively moving forward taking steps, making decisions to come to a class, listen to a teacher, take notes, understand, ask questions. You're investigating the teachings. You're rolling up the sleeves. You're not believing anything that we talk about. You're not believing what I'm sharing. You're listening, you're understanding, and then you look how to apply it in your life. And then when you apply it in your life, you decide and you can see for yourself that it's true. And through that, you gain wisdom. And this wisdom leads you closer and closer to enlightenment, where the mind starts functioning through this 
enlightened wisdom more and more and more. But without that investigation, that active role that you take to come to class, to open a book, to talk with a teacher in personal discussions, to listen to a podcast, to watch a video, all these different things that we now have available to us, you wouldn't be able to progress on this path because you'd have no way of eliminating this complacency, you'd have no way to take in the teachings, and you'd have no way of moving forward and practicing this enlightenment factor of investigation. During the Buddha's lifetime, they listened to the Buddha teach. That's how they investigated the teachings. They listened to him teach. And as his disciples or the bhikkhus or the ordained practitioners became more and more understanding of his teachings and became more wise, they started being able to teach as well. And they would actually talk with each other and they would have discussions with each other while the Buddha wasn't there. And they would discuss the teachings and try to see if they understood the teachings properly. And then they could confirm at different times with the Buddha if they've actually understood the teachings properly. And this is how they did investigation because everything was oral. Nothing was written down during the Buddha's lifetime. But today, we have books, we have videos, we have podcasts, we have online classes, we have in-person classes, we have personal guidance over Zoom and in person where you can meet privately with a teacher. These are all ways to practice this enlightenment factor of investigation. The enlightenment factor of energy is the mental alertness or vigor right? Having this alertness of mind, right? You guys have experienced complacency, maybe not necessarily related to the Buddhist teachings, or maybe you have, but you've experienced complacency in other situations where maybe there's a certain project in your house that you kind of need to get done. Maybe the sink's been leaking or the toilet's leaking and you know it's leaking and you know it needs to be fixed and you know, you, you just don't kind of get around to it because you kind of come complacent with it. It's, it's not leaking that much, right? And you just kind of live with it for a while. Well, the Buddhist teachings here is that, you know, we shouldn't be complacent when it comes to training our mind, right? Because we don't know how much time we're going to get in this life. Most people don't. And based on where you end up dying, if you haven't attained enlightenment, there will be rebirth. And the whole goal is to train the mind to enlightenment so there isn't rebirth. Well, if you're kind of lackluster and you don't have this mental alertness and vigor where you're applying energy towards the teachings of the Buddha to learn them and actively practice them, then yeah, the mind's complacent. And this can happen at different stages of your progress on this path. Like right now, you might have lots of energy, brand new program, preliminary class. Let me go see what's going on. Let me see what this is all about. I've got this mental alertness and vigor where I'm really interested in listening, learning, and understanding. But then maybe two, three, four, five classes, it becomes a kind of work and you kind of read the book and you, you know, you start seeing that it's quite challenging and maybe that energy kind of fades off and now the mind becomes complacent. So these hindrances can kind of go up and down, up and down at different times of your progress in the path. And when you identify that 
and you understand what it is, that it is one of these hindrances, then you can look to this talk and you can look to what I'm sharing here and say, well, what's the remedy for this, right? And here, the second aspect of the remedy to complacency is to practice this enlightenment factor of energy, where you apply effort and energy, this mental alertness and vigor to move forward. Instead of just sitting in one place and doing nothing, you actually apply energy to move forward. And then the third aspect of this remedy that the Buddha talks about is joy. This is once again one of the enlightenment factors in the seven factors of enlightenment, which is joy, which is experiencing joy without any particular object that's created that joy. So this is unconditioned joy where you've experienced happiness before, where you got a new car and the mind became happy, or you got a new pair of shoes and the mind became happy, or you got a new job and the mind became happy, or you got a new boyfriend or girlfriend and your mind became happy, right? That's conditioned happiness. What this enlightenment factor of joy is about is unconditioned joy, where the mind doesn't need any particular condition to experience this brightness and this joy in the mind, where you actively work to apply this factor where you just attempt to maintain the joy in the mind, not based on any particular condition. That oftentimes, for example, if it rains in certain cultures, people get down and depressed. Oh, it's raining, right? That's the condition. It's raining, so therefore, I'm sad, right? Or the sun's out, therefore I'm happy, right? This is condition. Well, the way that you train the mind to this unconditioned joy is if you notice that when it's raining, you're sad, and when it's sunny, you're happy, then when you observe this in the mind, then you train to be joyful in any and all situations. So when it's raining outside, be joyful. When it's sunny outside, be joyful. If it's snowing outside, be joyful. If there's a tornado or a hurricane coming, be joyful. Doesn't mean you go dancing in the street, but it means that you don't get disgruntled and upset and, oh my goodness, I'm so afraid there's a hurricane coming, right? Because once that fear comes in, then the mind becomes shaken up and you don't make as good of decisions anymore and you might actually end up causing yourself harm trying to get out of the way of this hurricane that's coming, if you allow the fear to come in, then you're going to be made, perhaps making irrational decisions. So what the Buddha is teaching is, is that we need to practice this enlightenment factor of joy where the mind can be joyful irregardless of what is happening around us. This is the enlightenment factor of joy. So let me just pause here and see if there's any questions on any of these three hindrances or the remedies associated with them. Yes, David, we have a question from Biplop. He would like to know, how can I improve mental alertness or bigger? There is a certain aspect of these teachings where you just got to pull up the bootstraps and you just got to go forward. I've talked about this before where certain times you're doing certain things or you're around certain things and you feel like there's this wall or this ickiness and the mind just doesn't want to do it. You've got to just pull up the bootstraps and just push through it, 
right? Let me give you a little example. Let's say you're at work and there's a certain person that you've been really hostile towards and they've been hostile towards you, but you know you you really should be practicing loving kindness, this active goodwill towards all beings without judgment. Well, now when you see them in the eating area, you know you got to walk in there, you know that they're there, and you kind of want to go the other direction. You don't even want to like go in that room because you just know that they're there, right? And the mind's going to have this aversion and want to move away from it. Well, rather than allow the mind to do that, you've got to pick up the bootstraps and you got to break through that wall and you got to be like, you know what? I'm going to go in here. I'm just going to smile, wave, and that's it. Even though a day ago or five days ago or 10 days ago, they were yelling and screaming at you at the top of their lungs and they were 100% disrespectful and rude to you, right? You've got to put that in the past because you're never going to get to good territory in this relationship if you allow the past to hinder your ability to now practice this energy to go in there and just smile and wave to them. And you kind of chip away at these things little by little by little. It doesn't mean you have to go in there and give them a hug and kiss them and tell them how great and wonderful they are, but apply some energy where you become more alert of what's going on in the mind. You pick up the bootstraps and you just push through that wall and you go in there and you just wave and smile. If that's what you need to do at that particular moment and that's what you can bring yourself to do, then you do that. And then maybe the next time it gets easier and the next time it gets easier and the next time it gets easier. And then instead of just a smile and a wave, because they've, you know, you've kind of done this a few times, maybe now you say, how are you, Bob? Right. And you add that to it. And now you do that for a few times and you get more and more comfortable with that. And this is how you practice energy is just pick up the bootstraps and just do it. Even though the mind is trying to keep you anchored in the darkness, you've got to rip up those poles. You've got to rip up those stuff that's hindering you and just, you know, move through it. That's the only way. Thanks, David. We have a question from Amina. She would like to know a clarification regarding pleasure of the senses regarding the eyes. If we enjoy seeing a mountain or flowers and gain joy from that viewing, is it not a hindrance? as it is not an attachment, but simply an appreciation of nature in that moment. Is this correct? Yes, that's correct, Amina. As I often say is with the Buddhist teachings and pretty much all the other teachings, whether we're talking about other like Jesus Christ or Prophet Muhammad or any of these folks, but we won't put the Buddha necessarily in those same categories because the teachings are very different. But when we look at these kind of teachings, oftentimes, the mind wants to see black and white and it wants to be able to see either it's on or it's off or black or white. But in reality, there's like this little sliver of white and there's this little sliver of black and there's this whole spectrum of gray and different ways to make decisions where you can stand there and look at the mountain and just be like, oh, wow, that's a beautiful mountain. And you can appreciate it, you can draw it, you can paint it, you can do whatever you're going to do, and you can enjoy viewing that mountain. What happens is if the mind now holds on to it and it finds such pleasure and such delight in this view that now when it sees other forms, 
it becomes discontent. This is a craving desire attachment where the mind is now longing for this contact of form through the eyes. So there's nothing wrong, right? The Buddha is not teaching what's right or wrong. He's teaching about what's causing the mind to be discontent. So while you're standing there looking at the mountain and enjoying it, a more awakened mind is going to already recognize this is impermanent. Don't allow the mind to get fixed to it, that it's not going to see this permanently. So you just enjoy it for whatever moments you have, whether that's five minutes, five hours, or five days, if you're on a holiday somewhere and you're looking at a beautiful mountain out of your resort, you enjoy it for what it is. And then when it's over, it's over. And you just know, okay, off to the next thing. And this is how you train the mind to guard those doorways that while you're looking at the mountain, you automatically know that this is impermanent and you just enjoy it for what it is in those moments and then you just move on to other things. Thanks, David. So it seems that the key is not so much that we're not experiencing joy, but we're not attaching to those feelings of joy and the things that cause them. Right. I explained this recently because this question comes up and it'll probably come up next Sunday when we're talking about the three universal truths and the four noble truths about these pleasant feelings of happiness, excitement, and elation that are conditioned, right? They're conditioned feelings based on some condition being met. And I talk about the goal with enlightenment is this unconditioned joy, right? This unconditioned joy. Well, what is that? Well, think about conditioned love. If someone has certain criteria that have to be met, and if you meet these criteria, they will love you, right? And then think about unconditional love, which is, I just love you because I love you and you're a human being and I just love you or you're an animal and I just love you. There's no condition that you have to meet. If you're angry at me, I love you. If you're smiling at me, I love you. Right. So there's this conditioned love, which all these criteria have to be met. And if you don't meet them, I don't love you. Or if you stop meeting those conditions, I will stop loving you. But then there's this unconditional love which is just, I love you just because. Which one of those would you rather have in your life? Conditioned love or unconditioned love? I think the majority of the people would probably say unconditional love. Well, the same thing here is, would you rather have conditioned happiness where it's sometimes there and sometimes not based on some conditions that are either met or not, Or would you rather cultivate and train the mind for this unconditional joy where it's just always joyful, no matter what's happening around you? It's just always inwardly joyful without any conditions. And that's what you're moving the mind towards through all of these teachings of the Buddha, not just the five hindrances. But that's the real key is getting to that unconditioned joy as well as those other unconditioned mental states or feelings that I talk about, which is peacefulness, calmness, serenity, and contentedness with joy. All of that is unconditioned, where you wake up in the morning, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. All day long, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. You go to sleep, peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy. And this is why the enlightened mental state is permanent, So once you apply all this work and effort, if you can get over this complacency, over this 
lethargic, this lack of motivation, if you can get over that and all these other hindrances that come about on this path, and you can get to this more trained mind, this purified mind, once you do, it's permanent. It's never going to revert back. The mind is never going to revert back to being angry again. It's never going to revert back to being hostile or aggressive or shy. Once you get rid of these aspects of the mind, because you've trained the wisdom into the mind and it no longer holds on to that pollution, it's been purified and now it will permanently reside in this enlightened mental state. Thanks, David. Manal is going to come in now and ask a question from Zoom. Wonderful. Yes, uh, Michael has a question. I notice with complacency, it's like you just choose to ignore and just not care anymore. Can you tell more about complacency? Yeah, what you're describing there is also complacency where the mind almost becomes uninterested. It's almost like it wants to sit on a log and just do nothing, right? And you can experience this all the way through, even up into the first, second, third stage of enlightenment, where this is one of the reasons why I feel, sorry, I'm going to go off the side a little bit. This is one of the reasons why I feel that the Buddha had the monks accept food from the household practitioners, where he was always bringing the monks in contact with household practitioners. Because the more you learn and you train in these teachings, the mind wants to go into seclusion. It wants to just be by itself, even in that first, second, third stage of enlightenment, before it gets the real brilliance and the real brightness of the enlightened mind practicing all these teachings. It wants to just revert inward and it just becomes almost so content being alone. Whereas if before you felt lonely and bored, and that's where some of the complacency came in, where as you get into that first, second, third stage of enlightenment, you can become so content being alone that you actually aren't even interested in being around other people. And you've got to actively move the mind using this energy and this joy and this effort to interact with people and get outside the house and uh, spend time around others and go do things with the family. It doesn't mean you have to do it every single day. But you've got to take some action in order to pick up the books, pick up the videos, apply that investigation as the enlightenment factor of investigation. You've got to apply some mental vigor where you notice the mind recedes and starts to become complacent. If you can catch that early, then it's a lot easier to bring it out. Whereas if you've been sitting around for several weeks, it's a little bit harder to get that back to where you would like it to be, which is in the middle. That's what the Buddha talked about. It's always talked about being in the middle, right? So when you start noticing the mind drifting off into this complacency or this dullness, lacking motivation and just wanting to sit around and be secluded and always by itself and just kind of block the world out and just ho-hum, you know, I'm discontent, I'm angry, I'm just going to sit around and be complacent about it. You've got to catch that and bring the mind back with energy. And part of that is investigating the teachings. Part of that is maintaining a consistent meditation practice and lots of other good, wholesome aspects of practice to move the mind where it's performing optimally 
and it no longer dips down into that complacency. Um, I have a follow-up question related to complacency, Teacher David. Um, how can you rationally know the difference um, between a mental dullness and a physical lethargy that comes from an underlying um, health issue? Um, so, for example, if, uh, if someone has a thyroid issue, they're prone to um, feeling very tired very quickly. And that can sort of kickstart uh, a habit pattern of, uh, you know, feeling a certain way. So how can someone rationally, if they're um, experiencing any kind of mental, uh, men, uh, excuse me, uh, medical issue, how can they kind of rationally work themselves out of that and um, increase their motivation level? Great question, Manal. This is actually found in the four foundations of mindfulness, which is something we're going to cover towards the end, but we can talk a little bit about it here. I've got something prepared to talk about this because in the four foundations of mindfulness, the Buddha separates the body, feelings, the condition of the mind, and mental objects into four different parts. And with awareness and observation of these four different parts, then you're able to discern where is this lethargy coming from? Is it coming from the physical body and something that needs to be addressed there? Is it coming from the feelings and the feelings that are existing and being produced in the mind? Is it just a condition of the mind that is being precipitated by these feelings or from some bodily sensation? Or is it because there is this hindrance? This, these hindrances are also called mental objects. Is it because of one of these mental objects that are in the mind that is causing this lethargy? So we're going to describe this a bit more detail in the four foundations of mindfulness, but that's really good that you're cluing into separating where is this really coming from? And this is how and why the Buddha separates things the way that he does so that you can identify what's the real root cause and you can work with it skillfully. Everything about the Buddhist teachings is getting to the root, to the core central problem because if you get to the roots you can uproot this problem or this challenge and then you've solved it entirely forgive me for using the analogy of chopping down a tree but if you chop down a tree and you left the roots there's still going to be growth there and it's still going to disturb the earth but if you had to chop down this tree and you dug into the soil and you got rid of all the roots and all the individual little spiny roots and completely cleared it out, it's no longer going to disturb this soil, right? And that's what the Buddha is doing in all of his teachings is he's showing you and pointing you back to the root cause of all of these destructive, unwholesome aspects of the mind so that you can uproot it and then you can replace it with wholesome roots. So it's good that you're cluing into that, Manal. Let's just wait a little bit before we get into it in too much detail. And if I don't answer your question when we talk about the four foundations of mindfulness, be sure to bring it back up again. Thanks, David. We have a question from Judith. Judith says, when it rains, Aiden is happy for the plants. Is Aiden happy or is Aiden experiencing sympathetic joy? Is sympathetic joy permanent or impermanent? 
Okay, a bunch of different questions there. When they experience happiness, when they experience that, they are the ones that are going to be able to figure out why they're experiencing it. Looking from the outside in, you can't tell why somebody else is experiencing a certain amount of happiness or joy. You can't tell whether it's conditioned or unconditioned in all situations. Sometimes you certainly can, but in other cases you can't. So at no time should we be trying to figure out other people unless you're in a teacher-student relationship. Oftentimes a teacher is going to try to help you to figure out what you're experiencing so that you can look at it more skillfully and resolve it. So in your example, that particular person can be experiencing that because of a condition or it could be unconditioned. We would have to talk to the person to understand more of whether they are experiencing it as a conditioned happiness or unconditioned joy. But that's that person's practice. We don't necessarily need to know about them. You just need to know about your mind. And if you understand your mind, that's the real key. Okay, so that's the first part of that. The second part of that is, is sympathetic joy permanent or impermanent? Sympathetic joy is impermanent up until the time that you attain enlightenment. As the mind gradually moves closer and closer to enlightenment and you attain this permanent mental state gradually over time through gradual training, it eventually becomes permanent because the enlightened mind itself is permanent. So all of those good, wholesome qualities that you cultivated in order to get to enlightenment all reside permanently. This is something that I haven't talked about yet, but perhaps we should more when we get to chapter 14, which is all about love. You know how we talk about conditioned phenomenon are impermanent. That's what the Buddha talked about. He didn't say everything is impermanent. He said essentially conditioned feelings, conditioned phenomenon are impermanent. Well, if you and your partner both get to enlightenment and you are both progressing on that path together, you will have unconditioned love, which means this love is permanent. So not only is sympathetic joy permanent once you get to enlightenment, but all those other unconditioned qualities of mine are also permanent. This is why I can love James, Manal, Judith, Iona, you know, Donnie, all of you guys, everyone in the world, you can love everyone unconditionally if you understand what love is, which is this genuine interest in seeing others be peaceful and be well. So there's certain mental qualities that become permanent because they're unconditioned. There's no condition that's creating this love. There's no condition that's creating this sympathetic joy. It's just the mind is always experiencing that and practicing that. Thanks, David. Those are all the questions we have for now. All right. Wonderful. You guys have some great questions. Let's move to the next two, which is restlessness and worry, which is the fourth one. But now there's this added piece to it, which is worry. So let's be sure we talk about both of these separately and then talk about the antidote. Restlessness is confusion, distracted, restless state of mind. This is like an overactive mind. This is where the mind wants to multitask and it wants to do all these things all the time. 
and it wants to go, 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 go. It's just restless. This is kind of the opposite of complacency, right? So complacency is on one side of the spectrum. Restlessness is on the other side. And what we're trying to do is we're trying to bring the mind into the middle, which is what the Buddha taught. So this overactive, distracted, restless mind, which is an overactive mind, but oftentimes that starts to show up in the body in bodily actions, as well as our speech. If people are speaking really, really fast, really, really rapidly, if you're doing that, that is because the mind is overactive and restless. Or if you're bobbing your foot, like you're bobbing your knee up and down, up and down, up and down right now as you're listening to me talk, or if you're tapping your finger, right? This is because the mind is overactive, right? And there's a lot of activity in the mind and it's not calm. The mind is restless and therefore, because the mind is restless, that's the intentions, the part of the Eightfold Path, we tend to see it in the speech, in the actions. It comes through by rapid speech and rapid movements of the body, okay? So that's restlessness. Worry is this component of the mind, this object of the mind, where you worry about your own unskillful conduct. There's some people that can just be really, really worried about what they do each individual moment. And if they do something that isn't part of the Buddhist teachings, like if they lie by accident, they can become very worried by that. Or if they, you know, maybe they, they steal or maybe they speak harshly or maybe they speak using idle chatter or something like this, their mind can become very worried because they feel like some doom is going to come to them. Because if you think about the natural law of gamma as punishment and rewards, which it isn't, but if you think that way, then the mind can oftentimes become very worried and think that, wow, I've been on this path for six months or a year. I've been doing all this work and man, I'm still talking harshly, right? And just be worried about your own unskillful conduct. So you've got to get rid of that along with getting rid of the restlessness because if the mind's overactive, it can lead to worry. It can lead to being worried about your own unskillful conduct. So this is why these two are together here. And to eradicate this, what you need to do is you need to build singleness of mind and develop this singleness of mind. And we do that through breathing mindfulness meditation. I didn't repeat that here, but that's the way that we build concentration in the mind is through breathing mindfulness meditation in order to create singleness of mind. That's one practice is breathing mindfulness meditation. But also, as we were talking the other day, is you need to train the mind to only do one thing at a time. You are probably doing things like watching TV and eating or walking and listening to music or walking, listening to a podcast or walking and uh, listening to music. Right. doesn't mean you have to hurry up and run out and eliminate that from your life right now you might actually enjoy driving and listening to some nice music. And that might be what you're doing right now. And that's just where you're at in your practice. But as you refine this mind more and more and more, and if you're noticing that the mind becomes restless or overactive, you've got to bring this down where the Buddha taught, if you're walking, you're walking. If you're talking, you're talking. 
if you're eating, you're eating. And he went on and he said, if you're urinating, you're urinating. If you're defecating, you're defecating. How many people in the world sit on the toilet and play with their phones? And then they end up sitting there for a long time. And in the old days, people used to sit on the toilet and read magazines or newspapers. And it ends up taking so long to do your business because the mind's preoccupied with reading or looking at your phone. Or think about all the people that have ever dropped their phone in the toilet because their mind's trying to do more than one thing at a time. So this is unskillful and it leads to unwholesome results. So not only do you need meditation and breathing mindfulness meditation specifically to train singleness of mind to focus on the breath, but you also need to train the mind to only do one thing at a time. When it's time to eat, just sit and eat. When it's time to watch TV, just watch TV, right? If you're talking on the phone to a friend, just talk on the phone to a friend. If you're going for a walk, just go for a walk and look around. And maybe you can't do that all the time right now based on the way that your life practice is set up. But do it occasionally and more and more. Expand the amount of time that you're doing that more and more. And you'll actually see that it's quite enjoyable. That you'll actually enjoy your walk a lot more because you're going to take in more of the scenery. Or you're going to enjoy your conversation with your friend more and you're going to be more penetrative in the conversation with your friend because you're not busy eating a sandwich while you're talking to your friend. Or you're going to take in the content of the television program because you're not talking on the phone and watching TV at the same time. So you might think that you're going to be less productive by doing just one thing at a time. But the mind can actually only do one thing at a time anyway. It just rapidly cycles from thing to thing to thing so quickly it makes you think that you're doing more than one thing at a time. You're talking to your friend, you're eating a sandwich, talking to your friend, eating a sandwich. You think you're doing both at the same time, but the mind's either doing one or the other. It's not actually doing both at the same time. So don't trick your mind to think that it's doing more than one thing because it's not. It's physically incapable of doing more than one thing at a time and just train it to do one thing at a time through singleness of mind so it doesn't rapidly cycle from thing to thing to thing to thing to thing. This is where the restlessness and the overactivity comes in. And then because your mind is restless and you're making mistakes in your practice, you're speaking harshly, you're speaking aggressively, you're lying by accident, you slip up and you lie, this is what leads to worry. And the mind starts worrying because it's so overactive, it's not practicing the teachings in a skillful way. So apply this right concentration through meditation and in your daily life, ensure that you're only doing one thing at a time to develop singleness of mind. The fifth one is also one of the fetters as well. This is doubt. And I talk about it in the book is doubt about the teachings and the ability for them to help you attain enlightenment or nibbana. What this really relates to is it really relates to having doubt about the Buddha, his teachings, the community or the Sangha, your actual teacher, like me as a teacher. If you had doubt that I would be able to lead you on this path, then you wouldn't be able to get very far because you're always doubting or you're always judging or you're always looking for faults and 
what did David do wrong? What did he do right? And if you have doubt about your teacher, it's going to hinder you from attaining enlightenment because you're not going to absorb the teachings and have this open relationship where you can talk to your teacher and get personal guidance and tell them, hey, I disagree with you, David, on this topic. Or David, can you help me understand this more? I don't understand it. Sometimes people aren't even capable of just telling their teacher, I don't understand this because either their own ego is there and they don't want to let that go or they feel like they might offend the teacher as if by saying that you don't understand something that you're implying that the teacher didn't explain it properly. But you've got to get rid of that doubt. You've got to get rid of that hindrance and you've got to have this open relationship with a teacher where you feel comfortable to say, I don't understand, or I disagree, or I would like further clarification on that, or can you explain this again? And the other thing that you have to resolve doubt about is your own development. Sometimes people have doubt not only about the Buddha, his teachings, the Sangha, or your teacher, but you actually might even doubt yourself whether or not you can actually do this or not. Because if you're going to climb a mountain and we can equate attaining enlightenment as climbing a mountain and getting to the top of the mountain, if you're standing there looking at the top of the mountain, it looks pretty far. It looks pretty high. It looks pretty treacherous. It looks pretty difficult to traverse. And if you've got doubt whether or not you can climb that mountain, you're never going to climb the mountain. You'll either give up before trying You'll be halfway there and you'll give up or get too tired. You'll become complacent or what have you. So if you have doubt about your own development and your own ability to get to the top of that mountain, then you're going to be hindered. So this doubt might show up at different times. Right now, you might not have doubt and that's great and that's wonderful. But if it crops up later at any point in your practice, that's where You've got to ensure that you do a thorough job of learning, reflecting, and practicing the teachings of the Buddha. Because by practicing that enlightenment factor of investigation, where you don't believe any of the teachings, but you learn them and practice them to see the truth, now you gain more and more confidence. Where when you first meet with your teacher and you talk to your teacher, they start explaining the three universal truths and the four noble truths to you. And they start showing you how these teachings are truth. And then you can independently verify that on your own without belief that can build some confidence for the Buddha, his teachings, the community, your teacher, and for you. Cause it's like, aha, I understand those three universal truths. Aha. I understand those four noble truths not quite practicing them yet all the time, but I understand them. And you don't have to give yourself a real big pat on the back that leads to pride or arrogance or ego, but look at where you're making progress and be like, yeah, last week I was angry and frustrated. That same thing happened today and I just got kind of annoyed. Hey, that's progress, right? So not a real big pat on the back where it goes to pride and arrogance, but just acknowledge your development and your improvement and see that you can actually do it. So this will slowly erode the doubt 
if you start learning and practicing the teachings, being sure that you reflect on them and you see the truth, that you can gain wisdom. And the more wisdom, the more understanding you get in these teachings, the more confidence that you can build. Because the opposite of doubt is confidence. That's what you're trying to build here. You're trying to build confidence in the Buddha, his teachings, the community of practitioners, your individual teacher, and your own development. That's what you're working towards is to build this confidence. And that doesn't always happen right out of the gate. It's built step by step by step by step. And that's why when we teach, I don't come into these classes or I don't go into this book about all the massive amount of details of every last teaching that the Buddha taught. Because if that book landed on your desk, think about how much doubt you would have if you've got thick books like, oh my goodness, what am I going to do with this? This is surely a mountain. Well, if this small little book shows up with a good amount of the teachings and you can start digesting this and you can be like, hey, I understand this. Hey, that makes sense. I can see where that's true. Oh, yeah, that that's exactly how my mind works. Well, now you start building confidence. So the role of a teacher is to kind of slowly pull back these teachings and slowly pull back the covers helping you gain exposure to them little by little, more by more, but you still have to be the one that steps forward with that investigation, with that energy, with developing confidence to remove this doubt that you have about the teachings. There are other hindrances besides these five, okay? These are the five kind of big ones that the Buddha taught as part of his five hindrances. But he taught about other hindrances and obstacles as well. You might even have some of those that come to mind. But these are kind of like five really big, crucial, important ones that show up as part of the five hindrances. But if you start digging into the Buddhist teachings and some of his other teachings, these teachings cross-reference and sync up with other teachings, and he starts exposing kind of lesser hindrances, which kind of bubble up to these five, right? So understand that there are other hindrances besides these five. These are kind of like the high level categorization of the ones that he identified as the most important. And the more you learn about them, you can identify these hindrances and then you can skillfully eliminate them, which takes time, but you need to be able to know about them intellectually to be able to identify them. You need to know about the remedies for them. You need to apply those remedies, working with them skillfully, and see how you can eliminate this from the mind. And as you do, that will help you to build confidence. Because not only does he have a lot of other more detailed hindrances that bubble up to these five, but he also kind of has like one major hindrance or one major obstruction to enlightenment. And it all boils up to what we call the unknowing of true reality. You'll see people refer to this as ignorance or delusion. Okay, I call it the unknowing of true reality because the Buddha wasn't talking about it in terms of ignorant people or you're stupid or you're ignorant. It's about the unknowing of true reality that the mind doesn't understand what it doesn't understand. 
the mind doesn't even realize oftentimes that it's causing itself discontentedness. The mind doesn't understand that it's causing its own problems and it can remedy its own problems. So all of the Buddha's teachings as a whole are working to eliminate this one major obstructive hindrance of unknowing of true reality or ignorance or delusion. Everything boils up to that one obstruction. But then a layer below that is the five hindrances. And then a layer below that and a layer below that, there's others much more detailed. And this is where you work with a teacher because as we get to know your mind and we understand your mind, then we're able to kind of help you on this path, pointing you to the teachings that would help resolve any particular challenges that you're facing at any given time. So let me pause here and see what questions you guys have. Hi, David. I had a quick question. I was wondering if you can expand on the relationship and distinction distinction between doubt and investigation and questioning the teachings. Sure. So in everybody, when they first come to Buddhist teachings, I would assume pretty much just about, you know, we can't say everybody because of impermanence, but I would say a large majority of people are going to have doubt because they don't know the Buddha. They've never heard of him. They don't know what the practice is all about. They don't even know what enlightenment is. They don't understand how to meditate. They just have heard people that do it. So there's a lot of doubt oftentimes when you first get going, and that's fine. There's not blind faith here. There's no such thing as believing the teachings or blind faith. And what you do instead is you investigate. You dive into the teachings. You penetrate the teachings. You look at them very closely. Learn them intellectually with a teacher. You reflect on those teachings. Apply them in practice. And then as you start to uncover how the Buddhist teachings are true, this can slowly erode any doubt because what you'll notice is as you learn the teachings more and more and you apply them, the condition of the mind is going to gradually improve because relationships that you had trouble in and you had challenges with will get more and more smooth or anger and hatred or hostility that you had around certain situations or certain people will slowly diminish and pretty much be eliminated eventually by the time you get to enlightenment. And when you see this change in the mind happening, this doubt starts to get removed more and more. And that's where you're working towards. This is how people knew that the Buddha was a Buddha, right? Because he was just a human being. You can't look at somebody physically and just tell that they're a Buddha. The way that people know is, is through the condition of the mind improving with the teachings that they're receiving. And there are certain criteria that make a Buddha a Buddha. But if you're learning teachings from somebody and you're applying those teachings and it's working and you can see the truth in it and you see the condition of the mind improving, then this helps to slowly remove doubt. But in order to move from doubt to confidence, as James is wisely pointing out, there has to be this investigation in there. Without investigation to kind of kick this off, then you would be struggling to ever remove doubt because you've never looked at the teachings. There's people in the world that would disparage the Buddha and talk horrible about the Buddha and think that his teachings are absolutely 
the most harmful thing that's ever been brought to the face of the earth. But then you ask them, have you ever read the Pali Canon? No. Have you ever learned meditation with a meditation teacher? No. Have you ever learned about the Four Noble Truths? No. Well, that's why they speak horribly of the teachings because they've never actually investigated them to try to understand what they truly are in order to remove this doubt. So if there's doubt and there's not investigation in order to kick that off, then you're never going to get to confidence. You need to have the investigation to go with it. So it would be fair to say that as we begin the practice, doubt can play a positive role in pushing us to investigate. But then as we investigate, that same doubt begins to diminish. I say so because, like, for example, I've mentioned about how when I got these books of the, the Buddha, which are his words, the words of the Buddha, I didn't believe anything in here. I doubted everything intentionally <laughs> because I was interested in proving it and, and making sure that I proved that it was true or false. And when I did and the wisdom came along with it and I saw the condition of the mind improve, that's how I knew, aha, this is true. And the more and more I did that, I just kept moving to more and more confidence where I have utter and extreme confidence in this man that we refer to as Gautama Buddha. I don't doubt anything that he ever taught. Anything that is being represented in his teachings now that somebody doesn't quite understand, I attribute that to impermanence because from when he died 2,500 years ago until now, there's been a lot of impermanence. But the more you investigate the teachings and you look at different translations and you get in touch with what this man truly taught, you can remove all your doubt because this man's teachings 2,500 years after his death are still producing enlightened beings today. Now, that is quite amazing. The other thing that I look at is I look at a society like Thailand where they've had the teachings here anywhere from 800 to 1200 years, which is a really long time to have these teachings steeped into the culture. They're just so part of the, the Thai people's life. Well, this enlightened mind is peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, where people should be practicing loving kindness and compassion and generosity and all these other good, wholesome teachings. Well, if the Buddhist teachings are true and we're going to build confidence in the Buddha, why don't we look to the largest population of people that are practicing the teachings that are closest to the lifetime of the Buddha, which is here in Thailand? 95% of this population of 70 million people consider themselves practitioners of the Buddhist teachings. And they're, of course, at different stages of their learning and development. But 95% of this population of 70 million people consider themselves Theravada Buddhist practitioners, which is the tradition of Buddhism closest to the lifetime of the Buddha. So if these teachings truly lead to a peaceful, calm, serene, and content mind with joy, where there's lots of love and kindness, compassion, generosity, and all these other good, wholesome teachings, then we should observe a very peaceful society in comparison 
to other societies that aren't practicing these teachings. And from my experience, that's exactly what I see. I live here in Thailand and I see a very peaceful, calm, serene, content, joyful, loving, kind, compassionate, generous population that is just always smiling. This is why they call Thailand the land of smiles. So this is how you can even take something and reflect on it. If you understand this peaceful, calm, serene, content mind with joy is enlightenment, you can say, okay, well, let me look around the world. Where's the place that's practicing, you know, the Buddhist teachings the closest in terms of the closest teachings to his death? Well, you look at Thailand and does Thailand kind of represent and have a reputation for being that kind of place? And I'm not sure what your experiences have been, but from my experience, that's exactly what Thailand is. And that gives us proof and truth and wisdom that yes, indeed, these teachings do work and that can help to erode some doubt along this path and build your confidence along with your own individual experiences of improving the condition of your mind. Thanks, David. We have a question from Biplab. He would like to know, without objects, is it possible to feel joy? Without objects, meaning like personal possessions? Yes. Okay. Yes, it is. There's plenty of people in the world who don't have much of anything, but they're still very joyful. It's not required to have a cell phone to be joyful. It's not required to have a car or a motorbike to be joyful. These are conditioned feelings. If your mind is conditioned on having these certain possessions and when you have them, the mind's happy. And when you don't have them, then the mind's not happy. That's what conditioned happiness is. But that doesn't mean that you need to go without a car. It means that you need to train the mind to be content whether you have one or you don't. Or you need to train the mind to be content whether you have a cell phone or you don't. One of the things that probably happens a couple hundred thousand times a day is people break their cell phones, right? And as soon as people break their cell phones, oftentimes people get very discontent. They get very worried. They get very fearful. They get very restless in the mind because all their data is here, their contacts. This is almost people's lives, right? This is who they, how they interact with the world. And if you allow your mind to do that, then it's going to experience pain. So it doesn't mean you need to do without a cell phone, but it means you need to train your mind to be content with it or without it, which means you might decide to go a couple of days without a cell phone for a while and see how the mind feels or a couple of hours. Right now, if you're on your cell phone constantly, going to a couple of days without your phone probably seems like a mountain. So you gradually train your mind to move away from this device. But then ultimately, once you train it to be content and peaceful without it, then you can go back to it and use it without the craving desire attachment. So if you notice that you're constantly on your phone and you've got this longing and strong eagerness for something like a phone, then I suggest that you try to go a few hours without it. And then you expand that more and more and more time until your mind is no longer obsessed and constantly thinking about 
How many likes do I have? How many loves do I have? Who called me? Who messaged me? What's going on in the news? What's happening on YouTube? When you can distance the mind and the mind stops obsessing about it, and then once you do, you can then kind of ease back into using it again. And then once you do, should your phone break, it's like, okay, well, it's impermanent. Let me get another one. (laughs) And your mind won't be discontent when something bad happens to it because you've preemptively trained the mind. You've identified, aha, I've got an attachment here. I've got some craving, desire, attachment. Let me resolve that because if I don't remedy that, someday it's going to lead to a painful feeling because I get so much pleasure being on this phone. That pleasure is still discontentedness. So if you're getting all that pleasure, then that's discontentedness. Someday you're going to get pain when you can't get on your phone. So when you identify that as the red light on the dashboard of your car, you've got to now take action to distance yourself from that, train the mind away from it. And then once the mind stops obsessing about it, no longer has that longing with strong eagerness, then eventually you can go back to the phone and use it now as a tool without craving desire attachment. Biplop has another question. Without craving, is it possible to pay attention to specific things? When I know about things, is it craving? If there's no attraction, why would I give concentration or pay attention? You can concentrate a million times more Biplob without craving desire attachment. It's the craving desire attachment that's actually hindering people from concentration. That's why the whole Eightfold Path, it leads to concentration. This enlightened mind that I describe as peaceful, calm, serene, and content with joy, some of the other aspects of the enlightened mind is focus, concentration, clarity of thought, and deep memorization. So the more you train the mind in the direction of enlightenment to come into the middle, now it's going to perform optimally where it will no longer experience this longing with a strong eagerness, this craving, I want it my way, it's got to be my way, because the mind's burdened with that. It's burdened with the craving, desire, attachment. It's burdened with this hatred, anger, ill will, this unknowing of true reality, this ignorance, this delusion. It's burdened by all of that in these five hindrances. A lot of times the 10 fetters, all of this other stuff, the mind's polluted And this path to enlightenment is to purify it and clean it all out. And when you clean it all out, it's going to function so much better. And you're going to have deep concentration more than you ever did before. And that's how you know your mind's moving closer and closer to enlightenment because you see the concentration improving more and more and more. But you've got to do it on a long-term basis. It's not like you meditate for one week and you immediately get concentration. Now, some people they can observe some improvements in a couple of days or a couple of weeks, but it's not going to be the same as when you get to enlightenment. It's going to be massively more when you get to enlightenment, but you should see some gradual improvement as you're progressing more and more on the path. There were some other parts to his question, James. Can you repeat those? He asked, when I know about things, is it craving? And if there's no attraction, why would I give concentration or pay attention? Okay, so when you know about something, this is wisdom, right? The goal in this life is to acquire more and more wisdom, particularly among these teachings, because 
the more wisdom you get, the more liberated the mind is going to be. The mind's going to be liberated, stop being held down by all this pollution in the mind. So the more that you eliminate all of these things, you will be able to let go and become more content and peaceful. Why would you be interested in something? That's a, a personal thing, right? Each person has different things that they're interested in and why they're interested in those things. Every student, every person is a unique being and we all have different things that we're interested in. I'm very interested in sharing these teachings and helping others in the world to learn and practice these teachings. It's not because of anything pleasurable. It's not because of anything painful. I just feel it's the right thing to do to help people in the world to learn and practice these teachings. And I think the more that I do that and I feel the more that I do that, that people will benefit from these good, wholesome teachings and the world will gradually improve over time more and more. But that's just my interest. Somebody else who's on this path might have a real interest in helping animals or might have a real interest in being a business person or have an interest of doing nonprofit work or any number of things, being a stay-at-home mom or dad. So everybody's going to have their own unique interests and the reason why they're interested in those things. And that's usually based off of our experiences. For me, I had a very, very, very difficult life a very difficult life. I would even say a horrible life. Even though there was definitely some wonderful things that happened throughout my life, it was extremely difficult. Having discovered these teachings or rediscovered these teachings and now seeing the benefit that they produce in my mind, I'm not interested in anyone else ever experiencing what I experienced in my life. And my way of helping to ensure that happens is by sharing these teachings into the world. And my interest and motivation to do so is based on my experience of life that was quite horrible growing up all the way through my life. But somebody else is going to have different experiences in their life and motivated by different things to do different things. And that's what makes us all unique and all different. And it makes it a very interesting place to live because everybody gets to pursue their own interest in life. Thanks, David. We'll go to Manal now for a question on Zoom. Yes, Sayona has a question. Sir, can you please confirm if singleness of mind can apply to perhaps only thinking about one thing at a time as well? For instance, when completing a task or reading a book, you would only think about what is in front of you. Thank you. Yes, 100%, Iona. Singleness of mind is being in the present moment and in your example, just reading that book. Now, you're not going to be able to do that right off the bat because the mind hasn't been trained that way. So remember that the Buddhist teachings are all about kind of showing you the possibilities and kind of showing you the ceiling, what you're headed towards. What you need to get to in order to attain enlightenment is this singleness of mind. But don't kind of beat yourself up or worry about not being able to do that if you're reading the book and it becomes difficult for you to do that. What you've got to look at is look at the improvement. So maybe a year ago or two years ago, like you couldn't focus on the book at all and it was just really hard for you to take in content. 
Well, maybe you practice the teachings a bit, you meditate a bit, you learn a little bit. Maybe now you can focus for 10 minutes, but the last 30 minutes, it doesn't go well. But then over time, maybe that time expands more and more, but don't get really joyful when you can sit there for an hour and stay focused on something, but don't get sad or depressed if you can only do it for five minutes because that's the impermanent nature of the mind that things are going to be shifting and changing and shifting and changing. But gradually, as you move closer, closer to enlightenment, you should start seeing this gradual progression as the mind awakens more and more to this brightness and this brilliance of enlightenment, where you will be able to focus on things in the present moment more and more. But that's only going to be when you practice breathing mindfulness meditation, which is right concentration, and you just do one thing at a time individually to bring the mind into the present moment. And the more you train it gradually over time, you'll develop more and more of this quality of mind of singleness of mind or right concentration. Thanks, David. Would you say that as we work on one particular hindrance, and we apply that remedy, that that remedy will also affect the other hindrances, lessen those as well? It can. It certainly can. That's why a lot of these things are intertwined. If you just learned and practiced the standard teachings of the Buddha on the Eightfold Path, you know, you're going to be learning a lot of these things, like in this book, like nothing that I've really talked about so far isn't something that has already been exposed to you if you were in this program previously. If you're just joining this program, then you're going to learn a lot of the details of all of these things as we progress in this program. But if you've been in this program for a while, as I'm kind of explaining what these things are in the remedies, this is just kind of like a reshifting and a reorganizing of things that you've already seen other places and just kind of applying them in a unique way. So this is where I was talking the other day. I think it was yesterday, how the goal is this enlightened mind that the Buddha talks about is getting to this enlightened mind. And there's these different roads that we travel. And, you know, you're kind of approaching it from different perspectives. So the five hindrances talk about certain aspects of the mind that need to be eliminated and certain remedies to apply in one way. The three poisons or three unwholesome roots or three fires talk about it in another way, in a kind of a different approach. The Eightfold Path talks about it in another way. The Every different thing, this, the seven factors of enlightenment talk about it in a different way. It's the Eightfold Path that is the core teaching. That is the path. And everything else kind of hangs off of that in one way or another. But all of these teachings kind of circle back to themselves in one way or another that as you kind of get underway, like James, I think, has been learning with me almost a year, and Manal's kind of getting closer and closer to that. Some of you guys have been learning more and more with me. These teachings start to kind of interweave and start to circle around each other, which actually makes it easier to learn because what you learned as part of the seven factors of enlightenment and the Eightfold Path and some of the other things start to kind of now be applied to this problem of the five hindrances and this problem of the three poisons and these other things. So all of these things interweave and interwine in one way or another. And you don't necessarily have to remember every single aspect of these things, but you should be aware so that if you're feeling 
doubt or you're feeling restlessness or worry or you're feeling complacence or ill will or you're noticing the central desires, then you've got a place in your materials if you're screenshotting this or you're asking for the PowerPoints or something like that or you're taking notes or you're listening to the podcast, you've got kind of a placeholder in the mind to go back to those five hindrances. And what was it there to get rid of that restlessness? Or let me talk to David about this doubt. I doubt whether David can actually lead me to this place of enlightenment. You know, who is he? He's just some American that, you know, has been part of Thai culture for the last 20 years. But What does he know about the Buddhist teachings? Maybe you have doubt and you want to learn more about my background and what I do and what I've been experiencing on this path and how I've been teaching. I don't take any offense to that. If you've got questions about my background or you've got disagreements with certain things that I teach, you're more than welcome to bring those to my attention. And I would share with you to help you remove that doubt because that's what I'm really interested in is helping you to progress on this path. So if there's anything that you're noticing as you progress on this path with your mind that is hindering you, this is what you go back to. And if you've learned these teachings in a lot of the other ways as part of other aspects of the Buddhist teachings, it becomes easier and easier to apply all this stuff because it's kind of intertwined. Thanks, David. Very fascinating to see how the teachings interconnect as you continue to study. Yep, for sure. And uh, it just makes it easier, I think, that there's duplicate and overlapping of things here. That seems to be all the questions that we have for now. Okay, so let's go to, I think this is the last thing that I had to share. Everything that we were talking about today really comes to right mindfulness. If we were going to talk about kind of like one aspect of the Buddhist teachings, that all of these five hindrances really hinge on, right? We gave the individual hindrances and individual remedies. And that's how to go in with a surgical scalpel in order to resolve and remedy these five hindrances. But everything that we just talked about really hinges on right mindfulness, which is the seventh step of the Eightfold Path. Right mindfulness is just to really be sure you have awareness of mind. Because right mindfulness is just so important in order for you to understand these five hindrances, to observe them when they arise, and to also eliminate them. Without right mindfulness, awareness of mind, that, ah, there's the central desires. Ah, there's the ill will. Ah, there's the complacency, right? Ah, there's the restlessness and worry. Ah, there's the doubt. Without that awareness of mind, of what's actually going on in the mind, you wouldn't be able to identify these hindrances, observing them and eliminating them. So I describe right mindfulness as awareness of mind. But when we talk about the hindrances, it's important to kind of deepen your understanding of mindfulness because there are certain things like complacency that aren't just in the mind itself. So in the Developing a Life Practice book, I talk about right mindfulness as just purely awareness of mind as a way to introduce you, get you started on the path, and get you moving in the right direction. But you're going to perhaps need to deepen your understanding of mindfulness 
as it applies to the five hindrances. And here's how. The first foundation of mindfulness is what the Buddha calls body as body. Okay, This is observing and having awareness of bodily sensations. So using the example that Manal was asking about is complacency or lethargic conditions, right? If you're experiencing lethargic conditions, it could be coming from something in the physical body, right? Maybe you haven't nourished yourself with enough food. Maybe you're not eating the right food and the right drink, right? And maybe that's where the lethargy is coming from, right? Or maybe it's a thyroid problem, which is, I think, what Manal mentioned. Maybe it's something like that, something physical, okay? So you've got to be aware, having awareness or observing the body as the body and seeing that separately. And then you got to have observation and awareness of the feelings in the mind because maybe the body's completely healthy, but the mind has feelings that are being produced that are producing this lethargic feelings in the mind. And if you can see that and have that awareness of mind, then you can understand that it's not an issue with the body, it's an issue with the feelings. And you can delineate that and more skillfully with a scalpel address that. And then there's mind as mind. This is observing and having awareness of the condition the overall condition of the mind. And this is something that can be influenced by the bodily sensations or the feelings, but it's kind of the overall condition of the mind. Is it just an individual body sensation? Is it individual feeling? Or has it been kind of like a consistent monthly thing that is always occurring? It's just been there for six months. Is it the long-term condition of the mind, right? And having understood those things, body as body, feelings as feelings, mind as mind, then you can look at mental objects as mental objects. The mental objects here that we're talking about are things like the five hindrances. So, for example, the ill will is a mental object. Complacency is a mental object. Doubt is a mental object. Doubt isn't a feeling, right? There's not a feeling of doubt. It's a mental object. It's like its own container. Because of doubt, there's oftentimes feelings of anxiety or stress or other things like this or fear, right? Feelings can come about because of mental objects oftentimes or because mental objects are present. So delineating this four foundations of mindfulness and separating it can oftentimes help you more skillfully understand things like the five hindrances and then effectively address them one by one. So by seeing the bodily sensations as bodily sensations, the feelings as feelings, the mind as mind, and the mind objects as mind objects, the bodily sensations are separate from the feelings from the condition of the mind and from the mental objects. All of these things are separate, okay? There's additional details about the four foundations of mindfulness, but here I'm just kind of introducing this 
there's this layered approach that us teachers take. We don't just give you everything in one sitting because it's too much to absorb in just one sitting. Remember, 45 volumes of books, okay? Everybody's at different places in their practice. These classes are providing certain amount of teaching, but then it's personal guidance where you progress further from there. So understand that there is more about the four foundations of mindfulness beyond this, but the way that I layer this is when you first get started with the Eightfold Path, I teach about awareness of mind, and that's what right mindfulness is, and that's what helps you on this path for a good long period of time. But when you start looking more closely at mindfulness, it breaks down into these four individual components or these four foundations. So let me see if you guys have any questions on right mindfulness and how this is utterly important to be able to be aware and observe these five hindrances and then work with the individual components skillfully in order to root out where is that complacency, where is that lethargic coming from? Is it the bodily sensations? Is it the feelings? Is it the overall condition of the mind? Is this mental object of complacency there? And that's what's kind of hindering the progress here. How do I root this out entirely? So David, the four foundations of mindfulness are each separate, but would you say that the body can affect feelings and feelings can affect mind and there's a relationship between them? There is a relationship between them, but when the Buddha talks about how all these things come about, he talks about it through dependent origination, which is something we studied in the Pali Canon in English class, or at least we looked at it. We didn't really study it too closely. We just looked at it about a week ago. That shows the detailed breakdown of what leads to what. This conditions that, and that conditions this, and this conditions that, and he goes through in a lot of detail. But yes, the bodily sensation, if you cut off your fingers by accident, for sure there's going to be certain feelings associated with that, and it's going to affect the condition of the mind, and there might be certain mental objects that are accumulated as part of that. So these things are influencing each other. Okay, we're going to go to Manal now for a question for Sam. Yes, Michael has a question. David, are mental objects objects outside of ourselves? No, these are in the mind. These are things like doubt. Doubt isn't a bodily sensation. It's not a feeling. It's not a condition of the mind. It is a mental object. And because of that mental object, it can then influence the condition of the mind and the feelings and then even bodily sensations. You can feel certain things in the body as a result of mental objects as well. All right, David, that seems to be all the questions we have for today. Okay, one thing I would like to add to that, Manal, whoever asked that question, is that there's really nothing about the Buddhist teachings that is based on external things because the Buddhist teachings aren't about changing anything in the external world. It's all about the internal mind. It's all about looking inward and figuring out how to change the condition of the mind inwardly. So as it relates to everything in the Buddhist teachings, it's always about what's going on in the mind or in this human condition of the physical body. He's basically, through the natural laws of existence, essentially explaining these natural laws of existence 
but a lot of them relate to this experience of the human condition, of this physical body and this mind coming together, but pretty much everything points inward to the inner mind, nothing external. All right, so these classes last for right around this amount of time, which is about two hours. Sometimes they're a little bit shorter. I've had classes as short as an hour and 15 or hour and 30 minutes, but kind of typically right around two hours is where we end up in these classes. And that gives us a good, nice time to really sink our teeth into some of these teachings and give you something substantial that you can walk away with and having learned and start practicing. Whereas if we just talked for like 30 minutes or an hour, we wouldn't even really be able to touch on much related to the Buddhist teachings. So by the time we teach and take questions, these classes usually end up right around two hours. So you can kind of plan for that and sometimes less. And there's been a few times where it's been a little bit more, but I don't take attendance. People can come and go. It's up to you. I'm available. I'm here. I'm sharing these teachings on Sunday, Wednesday, and Saturday. And then throughout the week in the Facebook group and through personal guidance and classes and things like that here in Chiang Mai, I make myself available to you to learn and practice the teachings. And you just have to decide to step out and actively engage and seek guidance from a teacher, either through posting questions in the Facebook group, through asking questions in the online classes, through sending a private message or scheduling a personal discussion. I'm here and available, more than willing to help you. You're not bothering me. This is what I do. If I wasn't helping you, I would be helping some other person. So you're not bothering me at all and don't ever feel that you are. If I'm talking to you and if I'm spending time with you, that means I've got the time. You're not taking me away from anything. I would only engage with Facebook Messenger or email or Facebook posts or other things if I've got the time available. So you're never bothering me. You're never causing me any harm whatsoever. There's nothing you can do to cause me harm at this point. There's literally nothing you could do to cause me harm. So feel free to engage, feel free to seek guidance, feel free to let me know what you disagree with or you misunderstand or you'd like clarification with. And we can talk politely, kindly, friendly, respectfully with each other. And I can help you understand the Buddhist teachings. And some of these topics that we're gonna get into You've got to sink your teeth into it and you've got to spend some time with it. Next week, for example, when we talk about non-self, that's something that usually takes many months for people to really understand and start to practice in a daily basis. So don't think that every single thing that I share with you that you should get instantly, right? The Buddha took six years to get to enlightenment. It's going to take you a little while. So take your time. It's walking the path with the Buddha, not running the path with the Buddha, right? It's walking the path with the Buddha. So we'll just take our time over the next six months, each Sunday, each Wednesday, each Saturday, gradually walking through and sharing and exposing these teachings for you. Of course, you're not gonna be able to make every class. You're just not going to, it's not gonna be possible. But if you make the effort and you apply energy, not only can you attend the classes that you can attend live, but these classes are recorded for the podcast. 
they're recorded for the YouTube channel, and they're in Facebook. So if you happen to miss a class, which I'm sure you will, then there it is. You can just take the content in later. And I just like to thank you and share my appreciation and gratitude for you choosing to learn and practice these teachings because the more you do that, the more your life's just going to gradually improve more and more and more and more. So thank you for your time, your effort, your dedication, everything that you do in order to learn and progress over the path of the next six months and the rest of your life. If you haven't yet downloaded this book, be sure to do that. There's lots of links where you can get this book for free. And if you'd like to take it to a local printer and print it, you can. If you have access to Amazon, Amazon prints them for a nominal fee. You can get it through Amazon, but you're gonna need a copy of this book as part of this program. And on Wednesday, we're going to be kind of officially starting the program. We are going to be officially starting the program. I'm going to go through and kind of explain to you some of the more administrative side and some of the aspects of the program and get you moving in the right direction to understand what the program itself is. And then we're probably going to be doing some meditation at some point. We may even do that right at the beginning is just kind of start off with meditation on Wednesday and then move into actually teaching what I have to share with you on Wednesday. The Wednesday classes are going to be rotated where there's going to be meditation, breathing mindfulness meditation, loving kindness meditation, Buddhist chanting. So you're going to be learning and growing about building up your practice on those Wednesdays. And then on Sundays, you're going to be learning about the Buddhist teachings and how to apply them in your life as well as on Wednesday. And if you would like to do Saturday, you can. But if you're just starting out, you might want to just stay with the Sunday and Wednesday. But on Saturday, we also have the Pali Canon in English program where there's these books, which are the words directly from the Buddha. And we're studying those on our Saturdays as well. At any time, feel free to reach out privately to get help. I'm more than willing to help you. And I just like to wish you all the best success as you learn and progress in this program and far, far beyond wherever it takes you. And just thank you for joining. And I'll see you either Wednesday, Saturday, or Sunday, or perhaps all of those days. Until then, have a really lovely rest of your day. Thank you so much. Sawadikap. Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.
Thank you for listening to this podcast. To provide support for this podcast, visit patreon.com forward slash support Buddha. To access more teachings, visit buddhadailywisdom.com. There, you will discover a full range of courses, retreats, and online resources to assist you on the path to enlightenment. Remember to establish a daily, consistent meditation practice, along with learning and practicing these teachings. A well-developed meditation practice is the foundation in which to train the mind to attain enlightenment.